us. Would you stand with me as we read from Acts 28? After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island, named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. You may be seated. Thank you. Just so you know, I only stayed up here to move this thing. I wasn't keeping watch on Pam. Get to the selfie, Missy, just a second. Oh, I will not break the mandolin. All right, everybody on three, wave one, two, three. And I do need to get a selfie, so my apologies here. Never taken a selfie in church before. Now I have. All right, you can be seated. Let's close in prayer. <laughs> no, in all, in all seriousness, uh, remember tonight, 
Take him home. Because we're on holy ground this evening. And there will be few nights in your life that are like this one. We can all be together for the first time. And we'll, we'll wish in years to come that we could travel back in time and relive a night like this all over again as though it were the first time. Tonight we're one family. Now, if you've been in the book of Acts, and tonight we are in the final chapter. And in this passage, we have a safe life story. Now, if I were Luke, in the book of Acts, it roughly ended in verse 3 when Paul's bitten by the snake, because that would be long gone. I hate snakes, and they should all die. <laughs> so, since we are all getting to know each other this evening, the first point of application is that I'm never with you. And even if you're bit by a snake, I will be able to see what helps you. <laughs> I love you. I hope things work out. But I will be in a good position or on the run, whichever. So we have a snake-like story. Now on the surface, this event is obviously miraculous. But on the other hand, doesn't it seem random? Why this story? Why did we include this snake-like story? We might better understand the purpose of this event when we take the whole summation of the book of Acts into view and we start with this question. Is the gospel up to this point in the story? Is the gospel really victorious? Is the gospel winning? Because isn't that what the book of Acts is supposed to be about? Here we are at the end of the book, and it doesn't seem like the gospel is victorious. And Paul, your all-star, the leader of this movement, the golden boy, is in chains, shipwrecked in the middle of the Mediterranean, in a nowhere town on a nowhere island called Malta. Is the gospel really victorious? Is that how we want to end the letter? But then on top of that, Paul's cold, he's wet. And he just wants to get warm by a fire, and all of a sudden the snake jumps out and bites him on the hand. Is the gospel really victorious? It's a question we all ask when we're met with unexpected circumstances. The gospel was people victorious two weeks ago. It's your congregational meeting, Christ Covenant. The gospel feel very victorious to us the Rockwell Press five months ago. And we say goodbye to our senior pastor. It's in unexpected circumstances where we begin to ask that question, is the gospel victorious? Because we have a future in mind, but then life always seems to take a different turn. And then there's Paul. He's bitten by the snake, but nothing happens. No swelling, no reaction, no effects. Paul just shakes off the snake and into the fire. So what's the significance of this snake-like story? Because Luke effectively decides to end the book of Acts with it. So what's it offer to us? There's two things in this snake-like. The first is that it's a sign of God's presence with Paul. Malta is not a detour. The shipwreck is not a surprise. God is not sitting on a dock in Rome, wondering when Paul is going to arrive. The snake bite represents the fact that despite appearances, despite the way things have happened, God was still with Paul, and everything is, in fact, going exactly according to how he wants it to go. Because he is, after all, 
the sovereign stories of it. But secondly, it's one last display of the final moments of Acts of what the entire book is about. The snake bites is symbolic, and that it represents something more than just the event itself. It's symbolic of the very gospel story. Christ was victorious over the serpent, over Satan, sin, and death. And in the Great Commission, Jesus calls us to participate in that victory, the proclamation of the gospel to every tribe, every tongue, every nation. The snake light is a picture of what the book of Acts is about. That we are the people that share in the victory of the resurrected Christ. But it's also representative of how what Jesus said was going to happen, happened. Luke 10. He said, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. And he didn't just say that to his disciples, he said that to 72 people. And then the great tradition, he said, All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. There is nothing that can stop my purposes. Now go and share in my victory. This is what Acts has been telling us all along that we were meant to be a people of immense power. Because the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you. And we are invited to be part of something of which there are no obstacles. There are no enemies that can overcome it. There are no challenges that can slow it down, and in the end there's no venom that will have any effect whatsoever over the purposes and victory of Jesus Christ. We are meant to be a people of power. The problem is Church doesn't talk that way. Church doesn't talk that way anymore. There doesn't seem to be a sense of cosmic victory and purpose in the way they think and act and operate. Quite frankly, we see a church that's far more concerned about elections than the elect. Far more concerned about earthly power rather than heavenly power. And those that do talk about power are some cheap message on a late night Christian television that we shouldn't be watching in the first place. We were meant to be a people of power and yet we choose to be defensive. We can choose to isolate. We see churches point fingers. We see churches that says us versus them. We seem to have lost that sense of divine purpose and cosmic victory. And there doesn't seem to be a sense of wow to the gospel anymore. Two years ago, my wife called me on a uh, Friday afternoon. And I answered the phone and she said, there is a snake in the rock. Now two weeks before, there was a little baby snake and I gave her a little pain can. And it was amazing. An incredible moment. And I told her, I said, I know there's a snake. I killed it. It's fine. She goes, no, no. There's a snake in the garage. I went out to the garage. I heard something get knocked over. I looked at it, they looked at me, and we both went in opposite directions. There's a snake in the garage. You need to come home and kill it. So I'm like, okay, I'll be home. So I hate snakes. I'm listening to Metallica. He says, get myself pumped up. I'm going right home. Pulling my driveway. Now the greedy that I can weaponize in this ancient battle between man and serpent. And I find my St. Louis Cardinals, World Series commemorative baseball bat. So I grab that, put in the garage door code, garage door goes up, and I'm ready to go. I don't see it. And so I start to look very carefully throughout the garage. I look underneath the 
smoke or like in the corner, all the different places that he could be hiding. I would use probably 15 minutes and I couldn't find him. So I'm just sitting there in my driveway wondering like, where it's at, and then my wife came by with our son, Ashton, who's two years old at the time. She said she'd find it. And I said, no, I, I, I can't find it. And then right as I said that, it was right over there, probably by a potting soil. And there was cardboard that was laying up against it. I said, I bet that's where it's at. So I walked over there very carefully. I pulled it back. And sure enough, there was a four-foot snake just coiled up. It looked at me. And it was ready to strike. So I put the car to back. I screamed. Out the driveway. My phobia's kicking in. I'm just trying to keep my breath. Like myself, still is watching me. And so I'm like, okay, I got to do this. I've got a son, and I wanted to make sure that he's dead. So I try to think, how am I going to kill this thing? I'm like, okay, you can't see me. I'm going to go to sneak attack option. So I go and I grab a landscape rig, and I just do a drive-by. I just run over, and I just slam on the ground. Oh, did he kill it? Did he kill it? Of course not. I'm not that lucky. So I go and grab some more monitor equipment, every piece I own, trying to kill this thing. But every time I try and kill it, it would just go further back in the potty soil, back behind the fridge. I had to move the fridge, and finally, <coughs> I can't, I, I don't blow to it. I was able to drag it out in the driveway and take about 50 blows to the head with a shovel. Snake's dead. Now, two hours later, cooking dinner in my kitchen, and my son likes to sit at the bar whenever we uh, make dinner. And all of a sudden, he goes, Snake! Boom! Wow! <laughs> I was over at him and I said, What are you saying? He goes, Snake! Boom! Wow! I was like, Son, please, go on. And he did it again. And so for the next two days, he would just say, Snake! Boom! Wow! And he said it about 50 times, and about the 50th time, I realized, you know, what a beautiful two year old expression of the gospel. Snake. Boom. Wow. With the cross of Jesus and his resurrection from the dead. Snake. Boom. Wow. At the end of all things, whenever Satan gathers his forces against Christ and his holy ones, and Jesus just walks through his army like their pants on the sidewalk, grabs Satan, drags him into the lake of fire, and all the saints rejoice for eternity. Snake. Boom. We don't really live with a sense of wow anymore. We don't seem to have that sense of cosmic victory that we participate in. A sense of cosmic victory and purpose. And the problem with that is, if we lose that sense of wow, then we probably start to wonder whether or not there was even a boom in the first place. Which means we just feel like all we're left with is the same. And the gospel, and the book of Acts, tells you a different story. The book of Acts invites us to realize the people of power that we were called to be. And so really, if you imagine the power that flows out of a people that devote themselves to the mission and purposes of Christ in their time and their place, because the book of Acts is not a collection of stories about what happened way back then. It's also a story of what could be now. It's the same spirit with the same purpose and the same victory. So then the question for us becomes this. How can we be the people of power in our time and place and share in the victory of Christ? What does it look like to be a people of power in 
How many times we pray, ask for help, ask for strength, ask for guidance. We have opportunities to be people of the Spirit. And yet we can so easily get stuck in the stream. And that should challenge us. The fact that we so easily try to escape should challenge us as people that profess God's sovereignty. Why? Because we believe that God is in every moment of every day. He writes your sunny days into shipwrecks. Nothing happens apart from his hand. There are no detours. He's never caught off guard. He's never surprised. He knows all your struggles, all the things you wish were different, all the things you want to avoid, all the ways you wish life could have been and hope it will be. And yet, he knows every detail. And yet, there you are in that moment. Why? Because he puts you there. Because he's sovereign. And he's in every moment because he writes every moment. Which means that we're constantly trying to escape in unexpected circumstances. And in those unexpected circumstances, we say, God, where are you? Then our own profession of God's sovereignty throws the question back on us. It puts the line back to us because then God asks us, No, where are you? Where are you at? You're the one always trying to teach you. You're the one always trying to leave the moment. I'm always here. I'm always at work. I'm with you in every single moment of every single day for purpose. Where are you? When we consider the Apostle Paul, he has learned to trust in God's sovereign hand in his circumstances. In our passage, he is crying on the beach. He's not sitting on a log, watching everyone else work, nor is he trying to escape. We've seen him in verse 3, building a fire, and getting settled in this new home that God gave him. And if we want to be a people of God, a people that share in Christ's victory, we need to learn to settle in into every moment and trust that God is with us. That he's writing our circumstances with purpose, even in mundane even the hard ones, even the ones that feel cold and wet, God is not found in what could be so what should have been. God is found in each and every moment. And learning to trust in the sovereignty means that we begin to first ask the question, God, what are you doing? Here I am in this moment. I don't want to be here, but I trust that you are here with me. What are you doing? What do you want to accomplish in me? What are your purposes? How do you want to use me? And it's in asking these questions that we begin to become a people that lay hold of the power that is at work within us. And that's kind of people. Because these are the questions that reflect the fact that we want to get on God's agenda instead of wondering why He isn't on ours. It's these questions that we have to ask that turn our hearts to a God whose desire and purposes are to heal, renew, redeem, restore, transform, and bring you life. Because he is not the God that writes meaningless moments. And it's in these questions that we become ready to become a new kind of people. Because in that, we begin to see beyond circumstances. We begin to see life at a deeper level. And even when you're bitten by a snake, you can actually see that it is a sign of God's power and presence in your life. But the alternative is that we just feel like all teens. You know, they see Paul struck by the snake, and what happens? They believe that he is a murderer, receiving divine justice. But then nothing happens to him. 
And a couple minutes later, they now think he's a god. Public opinion changes very quickly, almost. And when we don't live as those that trust God's sovereignty in big things and in small things, then we will inevitably go through life just like the Maltese. Because when God actually shows up, we won't even recognize it. And we'll think that it's something else. To be a people of power, we must learn to trust in God's sovereignty. And recognize that all our moments are written with purpose. And we have the opportunity to either first ask Jesus, what are you doing? Or we can try to escape. Second, and lastly, to be a people of power in the suburbs, we need to recognize that the gospel is for nice people. And Malta is filled with nice people. If you look at the way these 276 people that were shipwrecked were received on Malta, what's it say? Well, he says that they showed us no small kindness, unusual kindness. Luke goes out of his way to say that the Maltese were genuinely kind, hospitable, nice people. The name Malta means refuge. Paul's surrounded by nice people. But notice he doesn't sit back and take a vacation. Instead, he gets to work because he knows that the gospel is for nice people too. God put him there for purpose. This is a good passage for us to consider God's purposes for us. Because we live in the suburbs. The suburbs are filled with nice people. People that are hospitable. People that have a sense of community. They rally behind causes. Most have a church they go to. But we can open the door for you. They get their purse. They'll offer you a nice smile and a nice hello. And if we're not careful, then we can easily let ourselves off the hook as we engage the world around us. Because we look around and we think that everything on the outside seems just fine. All the boxes seem to be checked. What need do they have of Jesus? It doesn't seem like they really need anything at all. Everything seems to be just fine. Everything seems to be in place. They're so nice. That person's sweet. That person's kind. I don't really want to talk about Jesus dying on the cross for the wicked. I don't want to talk about living sacrificial life for the poor. I don't really want to talk about a life of joy and obedience comes from picking up their cross and following after Jesus and sharing in his suffering. Those things are things that don't seem to be necessary. But in the end, when we do that, we just make a mistake that it gives us kindness of Christianity. And whenever that happens, we have to admit, do we not minimize the gospel? To treat the eternal command of Christ to descend his kingdom, to make disciples of all nations, as though it doesn't apply anymore just because we drive into the suburbs. Because we have to recognize the gospel and the need that it meets us in. Nice does not mean happy. Nice does not mean a good marriage. Nice doesn't mean that that person you just met or saw isn't paralyzed with anxiety, gripped by addiction, loneliness, and despair. And there's a good chance that smile may just be hiding the fact that they're trying to keep it all together. We encounter people on a daily basis that could just be as lost as the Maltians. That even though for all their genuine kindness, they still don't want to murder God. And just this week, when my wife and I sat down at a chip play, there's a woman next to us that was explaining that her and her husband were getting divorced. Listening to her son cry 
she gave you a nice smile. We're surrounded by people all the time that are just doing their best to hang on. If we want to be a people of power and devote ourselves to God's mission, in our time and place, we have to learn how to evangelize to nice people. So how do we do that? Well, how does Paul do that? It says he finds his in their need. He finds their need and he meets it. And he meets them there. In verses 7 through 8, Paul invited to stay at the home of the chief man of the island named Publius. And while he's there, Paul learns that his father was sick with dysentery, which was an incredibly painful infection of the bowel that could last for years. It was a long, slow, painful way to die. And when Paul hears about it, he goes to visit him. He prays to him, and he's healed. And after this, Paul spends the rest of his time on the island in ministry. As the rest of the people brought those who were sick, brought those who were diseased to him, and they were healed. Now, it's easy to look at that situation and overlook that, you know, this is just another healing in the book of Acts. But what else is going on? What other needs are underneath all of that kindness that Paul is looking underneath? What other needs is he meeting? He's meeting the needs of parents that might have been watching their child slowly die, sick with disease, and they're going bankrupt trying to heal. For a woman that's looking at the impending death of her husband, she's trying to figure out and wonder how in the world she's going to make ends meet. He's meeting the needs of people who struggle with the same things that you and I struggle with. Will I be okay? Am I going to make it? Is my family going to be alright? Will I be able to provide for my loved ones, my children? And yet, for all the time, it's kind of sitting nothing about any of their greatest needs. And when they were healed, they understood what that state might represent. They now were introduced to the power of Christ and his victory over Satan, sin, and death. And they became a wild kind of people. Because in that, they were surrounded by getting Paul and doing whatever they needed for their journey. They, out of their abundance, gave and were generous. Because out of their all and their gratitude, they participated in the events that would change the world. Because they would send Paul to Rome. And through Rome, the gospel would go to Europe. And through Europe, the gospel would go to you. And evangelism is our context. And embraces God's purposes in our community. And our time and our place requires that we have to look beneath the surface and minister to the needs that we will never be finding. Because all around us, people are hurting, lonely, afraid, depressed, numb, confused, and empty. And all of that can be covered up with a smile. And when we seek to meet the needs of those around us, we do become a people of power. Because it's into that type of people that Christ promises to work. Why? Because now we are getting on God's agenda to disciple all nations, even the nice ones. So seeing as we close, how can we connect to two ideas? Well, I'm saying none of this would have happened. Paul had spent his entire time on the island trying to figure out how to get off the island. And when you learn to trust in God's office, in every moment of your life, and you start to ask what he wants to change and accomplish in you, and the good moments, and in the hard, then you become an incredibly powerful presence to the world around you. Because now you have a story to tell. 
Now you have a story that they're witness to of what God has done in you. The ways he's met your needs, the way he's met you and your addictions, difficult circumstances, the way that he's brought freedom, and the ways that you finally got on his agenda and experienced in life. It's quite frankly, it's very hard to go out to our context and meet the needs of others if we do not know how Christ has led us in our own, if we're always trying to escape. So where do we start? Just like Paul, started with a simple conversation over dinner at Lucy's house. And really, that's all it takes. is a simple hello, a simple conversation. That's quite frankly all it took for me. In uh, October of 2003, I was a sophomore in college, and I, I went into Christian Fellowship Church and I sat down in the back row. And I wasn't there because I wanted to be. I just transferred to Mizzou, and I sat down, and I was there because I was tired of lying to my parents that I had come to church and I was attending. And so I was felt guilty, so I finally showed up to check the box and move on. Now, we got halfway through the service and they did what they call halftime. People would greet each other. And so about that time, I thought, hey, I'm planning my escape route. This is a great time to leave because I was not going to church back then. So as I'm looking and I find the exit, I get ready to leave. And this guy just really hijacks my plans. He goes, hi, my name is John Holmes. I'm like, hey, I'm Zach. Good to meet you. He's like, are you new here? And I said, yeah, I'm new here. I said, transfer here, go to zoo. He goes, really? Uh, what are you going into? So mechanical engineering. He goes, really? Me too. What classes are you taking? And I'm like, goodness gracious, this is a funny question. This guy won't go away. And so he's like, what are you taking? I'm like, I'm taking these classes. And he said, uh, he goes, I, I know those classes too. That's incredible. Do you want to come sit with me and my friends? I'm thinking, no, I just want to leave. Sure, John, I'll come sit with you. I'd love to. Let's meet your friends. So I walk up there, I sit down. I uh, listen to end up going through the rest of the service, and at the end of the service, John asked, hey, can I have your number? Because why don't you just get together and do seven? I love that email address. So sure. So I gave him my number and did a big call. Later that night, I called. He said, hey, we'll get together tomorrow. Do you want to come study with us? And I said, sure. I'll take some free answers. Why not? And so I went, helped him, and I, uh, we had our study study time, and at the end of that, they said, hey, we're having a poker match tonight. You want to come play? And I'm like, Okay, I'll come play. So I went there to the And I was there for one minute. And then I was there the next day. The day after that. And I was there every day for two years in that house. And then I moved into that house. And all throughout those two years, they walked with me all through all that I experienced in life. They introduced me to words like grace. They introduced me to words like God's sovereignty. And the thing is, I was raised in church. I thought I knew it all. And I was a nice guy. I showed up to work on time. I studied hard in school. I made you laugh. Fun guy to be around. I was a nice guy. And yet, whenever I came and I encountered them in their community, they turned my world upside down. Because they walked with me through thick and thin. And even though I've been raised in church, I was 20 years old for the first time. I finally trusted in Christ. And I remember leaving their house when they walked back to my home. And I remember thinking so vividly that this is what it means to have a plan. I've never had a plan my entire life. Because of what God did through them. And all of that, my life has changed through a simple hello. And they believed that the gospel was for nice guys to see. 
here we are last time. We were here, we are here, because we were met with unexpected circumstances. None of us asked for it. None of us ever imagined that this is how things were going to go. And yet here we are. But this is not the detour. Wholeheartedly, I believe this is what God had planned all along. Why? Because He's sovereign. He's been telling this story and we just didn't know it. It's just now that we to realize that the future of our two churches was always intended to be in a climate as one family, one body, one purpose, with one Savior, and one mission. And I really do not know what that future holds. I have no idea. But I do know this, it will be one where we endeavor to meet the needs of the poor, the needs, and the nice, in our time, in our place. And to the best of our ability, we will share in the victory of Christ together. And by God's grace, it will be a future that we can summarize with three very simple words. Snake, boom,